Well, God bless you all. Wonderful to see you. Uh, I want to ask you a question. Um, if I were to ask you to define a righteous person, if I asked you to give the characteristics, some of the characteristics of a righteous man or a righteous woman, my guess, I might be wrong, my guess is that you would never come up with uh, what I'm about to read to you in Proverbs. That's where we've been, the book that houses wisdom, available wisdom for any who's willing to listen, skills in living life. I want to read to you just one verse for tonight, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10, and I'll bet you you would never imagined what is contained in this verse to be one of the distinctive marks of a righteous person. Look what it says, Proverbs 12, verse 10. A righteous man, here we go, has regard for the life of his animal. Are you kidding me? I'm looking for something cosmic and lofty and transcendent, and this text is about critters. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight, animals. This righteous person is uh, indicated here to be in contrast to someone else. See, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. So one of the character, if I'm reading this right, and you correct me uh, tactfully later if I'm wrong, one of the characteristics of a righteous man, it seems to me, from God's perspective, is that he has a kind and caring response, not just to people, but to animals. Uh, the text says he has regard for the life of his animal. In the Hebrew, that literally reads, he knows the soul of his animals. He's sensitive to the needs of his animal. He takes note of the animal's need for shelter and for water and for food and for protection. He pays attention because he cares about him. That's the mark of a righteous person. So apparently God notices how we treat animals. Why? I mean, he's the creator of the universe. He's transcendent deity, and yet uh, the thought that he would take time to be observant about how we respond to animals is rather overwhelming. Uh, why would he do that? Well, I think it's because God is smart, and I think God knows. One of the uh, surefire ways to determine the character of a person is how that person responds to animals. So how one treats animals is indicative of the way that person really might respond to people. Do you know one of the early indicators of whether someone will grow to commit great acts of violence later on in life? Did you know? Is how that person as a young person treated animals. If that one who becomes a mass murderer, the likes of which we've seen in our day, one of the common factors and predictors of that is cruelty to animals. God knows this, and so he's observant about it. In other words, is a, is a person patient with animals? It's likely that person will be patient with people. Does a person lose his uh, temper with animals? Uh, there's a strong possibility that person is likely to do the same with reference to people. Does a person abuse animals? 
Well, there's a possibility, a strong one, he may do the same with people. So this verse really is not about animals, is it? It's about two different kinds of people. One is a righteous person, the other is a wicked person. And they are distinguished one from the other by the way they treat animals. So an animal is dependent on its master. A righteous person sees the animal's dependence and moves in with care, compassion, and mercy so as to take care of the dependent animal. But a wicked person sees the dependence of the animal, and he sees it as an opportunity to dominate with cruelty. He sees a needy, helpless, dependent, and weak, indefensible animal, and he decides that's an opportunity to exert cruel mastery over the animal. And God says that really is the difference in one sense between a righteous person and a wicked person. So God watches how we treat animals because that's a reflection of our character. I always think if I was an employer, what I would do uh, uh, beyond just looking at a person's resume and stuff like that is sort of have them come over to my house and see how they respond to my two babies, uh, my, my two dogs, sorry. I call them babies because they don't think they're dogs and neither do I. So I, I would just want to see, you know, how they get along. And by the way, if you're single and on the prowl, I, I mean uh, looking for, for a life partner, I think one of the diagnostic questions you should sort of ask is uh, how that person responds to, to animals because, you know, that may, that may be the way he or she responds to you. For instance, do you know that David, King David, was selected by God to shepherd his people Israel from the most unusual place. Uh, the Psalms, Psalm 78 says, God recruited David from the sheep folds. No, and not from a, uh, an Ivy League school or a seminary, not from the corporate world or not uh, as an officer in the military, but just as a shepherd boy. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, do you remember when David approached Saul the king and told him, I'm ready to deal with Goliath? And uh, Saul the king was trying to talk him out of it. You know, you're just a youth with ruddy complexion. and You know, he's a big uh, uh, veteran military man. And David said to Saul in 1 Samuel 17, your servant was tending his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued him from his mouth. I think God saw as David protected his sheep, so too he had the makings of someone who would be a protector of God's sheep, ancient Israel. Now someone might say, if you're an astute thinker, someone might say, ah, Stuart, you're getting carried away. Because this verse, Proverbs 12, 10, is not about your household pets you may be enamored with and adore, may be carried away by. No, no, no. These are about beasts of burden. These are agricultural farm animals who are not there to, you know, hug on and sleep with and enjoy. You know, these are like cows and chickens and pigs and stuff like that. Now, if you thought that, you would be absolutely correct. That is exactly what Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10 is about. It's not about our pampered household pets. It's about working animals, beasts of burden. But this really makes the point, it seems to me. Here, here's the idea. 
If God even wants us to show kindness and compassion to farm animals, if he even wants working animals, farm animals to be treated well, he certainly permits and encourages us to show proper care, kindness, and compassion towards our household pets with whom we have established an emotional connection. So I love the scriptures. I have found uh, freedom to love on my little doggies, even to the extent I'd, you know, when my kids were young, they'd be watching TV in the living room at night, sitting on the couch, and at a certain time, I think I told you about this, this is good, I, 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 I confess it, I get it off my chest, it's a little crazy. I used to tell the boys, guys, you gotta get off the couch, um, your sisters want to go to bed. My two dogs. They would say, Dad, they're dogs. To which I would say, shh, they'll hear you. And I would actually make them get off the couch because my doggies would get on, on the couch. Nope, not right away. I had to put their blankets on, fluff them up a, a little bit. And I think that's why my boys turned out so bad. But anyway, uh, uh, this gives permission uh, to be a little crazy about your, your household pet. And so uh, let me share with you what I uh, have found to be, I think, one of the most poignant descriptions of someone even showing affection to one of his farm animals in a very, uh, I think, delightful and touching way. I read this to you from 2 Samuel chapter 12. You'll be familiar with it. Nathan the prophet has something to say to David. And here's what it says. Uh, there were two men in one city. Nathan is speaking to David. It's kind of like a parable. Uh, uh, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Isn't that beautiful? Listen, we got to hurry up. I, gotta, gotta, I, gotta, I need to go home and hug my... I mean, this just... Yeah, and my wife too, I know. But... <laughs> Folks, here's the deal. God created all living things, and I know he created us to be unique. So we read in Genesis 1.27 that he created us to be in his own image. I know that's not said of animals. That's only said of us. It's clear that in all of God's creation, we humans have most worth and value in his eyes. I know, humankind, we are the crown of God's creation. But though he values us, it seems to me, above, above all else he's created, that does, mean, that does not mean animals have no value to God. In fact, they have great value. Listen, Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet... Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Yes, we are. We have much more worth than animals, but God still provides for and cares for even the birds of the air. So when God finished a part of his work of creation, when he created animals, he came to a conclusion. It's like he stepped back like an artist, as someone who's just painted 
uh, 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 something beautiful, our composer who finished a wonderful composition, who, who steps back from it, folds his arms just to enjoy what he created. It's as if God did that. And when he created animals, he stepped back. Genesis 1.25, we read, God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw. He stepped back. He's evaluating it. And God saw. This is what it says. God saw that it was good. After he created animals, he saw that it was good. And then God did something remarkable. He gave us's dominion over the animals. Yeah, this is what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, us, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and here we go, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gave humankind dominion over animals. However, we are very much accountable to God with regard to how we exercise our dominion over animals. God-given dominion over animals is not authorization to abuse animals. We're accountable. God cares about the animals he has created. For instance, have you heard of the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath? This is like a big deal. Fourth commandment under the law of Moses. All kinds of uh, ways to acknowledge the day, set it apart, make it sacred. With reference to the Sabbath, we read this in Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall do no work. Uh, neither you, nor your son, nor daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle. God so cared, even for the animals he created, he wants them to have a day off. The Sabbath even included animals. How about this? Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. You shall not, have you heard this one? You shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. Feed it. Let it eat. Yes, it's a beast of burden, and it's there to provide for you and do work, but you should provide for it. Jonah. Remember Jonah when he ran away from God's commission to go and Take good news to the Ninevites. Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. God speaks, rebukes Jonah. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Wow. I guess I never saw that until I began to study it. God had concern, surely, for the people in Nineveh, but even for the animals. How about this one? Job 38, verse 41. Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is God does. He provides for them. So too should we. Which leads me to this question. This being the case, are we permitted to kill and eat animals? Boy, oh boy, I'm uh, addressing the question to uh, 
a house full of hunters and fishers. So I'm on thin ice here. Let's talk about this. Can we kill them and eat them? Folks, in the beginning, did you know that plants, not animals, were humankind's diets? They were vegetarians, every one of them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. Then God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Originally, God's diet for first man and woman were plants, vegetables, not meat. But after first man and woman sinned, you can read about it in Genesis 3, we call this the fall of humankind. After the fall, everything changed. I mean everything. Before the fall, Adam was able to get uh, close enough to animals. Do you remember this? To, to observe them and name them according to their characteristics. Remember when God said, name all the animals? Now, how are you going to do that if animals are hostile and aggressive? Before the fall, that's the point. They weren't. Now, Adam could get that close to, but after the fall, everything changed. Animals became dangerous. And uh, here's what a good God did to protect man. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. God blessed Noah and his sons. This is after the fall, after the flood. He blessed Noah and his sons. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Even after the flood, God repeated this marvelous blessing. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Then listen, the fear of you, this is new, and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all of the fish of the sea into your hand, they are given. You know what a good God did? Uh, after the fall, God said, I will do something to protect you because everything has changed. Everything is turned around now. The harmony and peacefulness, tranquility of the world I created. You people messed it up with the corrupting effects of your sin. And now animals are out to get you. So I will put the fear of you into them so that they don't eat you. In fact... Not only uh, will they not eat you, now you get to eat them. So after the fall of mankind, um, we read in Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. Everything. I give it all to you as I gave the green plant. Prior to the fall, you eat veggies. After the fall, you can eat meat and potatoes with your veggies. That's just the way... It is. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, God even delineated what he considers to be a clean, edible animal uh, in distinction to an unclean. There's a whole list of animals. Animals you can't eat, animals you can't eat. Now, all of those dietary restrictions changed. Even those changed. In Acts chapter 10, you can read about it. Remember Peter had the vision? And there's a sheet coming down. all kinds of critters in that thing. And God said, eat. And he said, I can't eat that. You know, I'm an Orthodox Jewish guy. Some of this stuff is not kosher. Hey, what I declare clean. Now, I know it's about people, but don't jump over the immediate application. And that is food, even meat, doesn't defile you. You're already there. You get all kinds of defilement even without the help of meat. So God is re relieving in Acts chapter 10 even the dietary restrictions, in my opinion, he gave in the Old Testament. And let me ask you this question. The Lord Jesus, before his death, didn't he eat, didn't he celebrate the Passover <laughs> with his uh, intimate followers? Do you know what one of the key elements in the Passover is? 
It's a lamb. It's not asparagus. It's a lamb. So I don't know if the Lord Jesus was a hunter. I, don't, I know he was a fisher. Uh, I, I, but I also know he ate meat. That's the whole nature of the... In fact, I read this to you. Luke chapter 22, verses 7 and 8. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go, prepare the Passover over for us so that we may eat of it. So, it seems to me animals can be killed and eaten. Now, a, uh, a diet that overdoes it in red meat uh, may not be the healthiest one for you, but I don't think if you're a red meat eater, in my opinion, you're violating any stricture in the scriptures. You may be violating principles of good nutrition and all that. They say we Americans eat way too much meat. And they're probably right. Uh, but there's no biblical restriction on it, it, it seems to me. But though that's the case, you can kill animals and eat animals. Still, this is also true. Uh, Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence. His soul hates. So you cannot, uh, in the course of killing so as to eat, do so with undue cruelty and violent intention. God still watches that. So this leads me to this statement. It seems to me there are two very unbiblical responses to animals. Here's one. We've discussed it a little bit. Animal abuse. That is an unbiblical response to animals. Animal abuse. But here's a second that's also unacceptable. Animal worship. Animal worship. So, um, do you know animal worship is part of the worship and religious uh, ritual of an amazing number of people groups around the world today? I thought this was like an ancient thing, but we're more sophisticated and advanced now. Much to my surprise, I found out this is not true. For instance, one of the animals that is most commonly, not just admired, but worshipped, is a snake. Snakes. Snakes are, uh, for instance, worshipped in a number uh, of parts of India and among certain Native American tribes. Tigers are worshipped in parts of China. Not just admired, I mean worshipped. Uh, for instance, in Hinduism, the tiger is identified with the Hindu god Shiva. In many parts of Vietnam, there's a tiger temple in just about every village where you go to worship tigers. Not the maker or creator of the tiger. No, no, no. The creature instead of the creator, the tiger. Cattle are worshipped and considered to be holy in Hinduism. Elephants are worshipped in many parts of Thailand. Goats are worshipped in various parts of Africa. Monkeys are worshipped in Togo and French West Africa. In fact, some, not all, some Buddhists believe the monkey is an incarnation of Buddha. In Nepal and parts of India, dogs are worshipped. Now that one, that's going to probably get me. <laughs> Billionaire Leona Hem Helmsley, remember her? Leona Helmsley. She uh, left in her will a $12 million trust fund for her dog. You have a problem with that? It is a problem. That is really overdoing it. 
I got friends sitting here somewhere, Jack and Martha. There they are, Jack and Martha. And uh, they have a dog named Duke. And uh, Jack told me he found somewhere online or somewhere uh, this thing you can get that uh, you program it, and it automatically feeds your dog if you're gone. In fact, uh, you, you say something. Uh, I don't know if I got this right, Jack. And by the way, you should never tell me anything if you don't want anyone else to know about it. I'm just telling you. I have no restraint. So, uh, so Jack was telling me, uh, you know, he, he'll say, Duke, it's time to eat. And Duke will come and eat. So uh, Jack was saying, if he, he can say that. They got a little recording device in this machine. Three times a day, the machine will say, Duke, it's time to eat. And in theory, Duke goes over and, you know, eats some of the food pellets and, that, and that's it. Pretty cool. I admire you, Jack. I'll tell you that. But that's different than worshiping an animal. Don't you think that's unacceptable? You know, there are certain groups, even in our own country, seems to me have gone too far. They have a distorted view regarding animals. It's one thing to treat animals with ethics, but it's another thing uh, to equate animals with humans. For instance, a, a prominent uh, animal rights activist made this statement, we should stop treating non-human animals as our property. So the implication is, we are human animals, there are non-human animals, there really is no difference, and therefore, where do we get off exerting the right of ownership over non-human animals? See, but that's a total distortion of uh, the uh, privilege and responsibility God gave us, that is, to have dominion over all created things. One of the original founders of PETA, you've heard of PETA, P-E-T-A, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, uh, her name was... Uh, uh, Ingrid Newkirk, she made this. Tell me if you think this is an outrageous statement. I think it is. See what you think. Uh, Ms. Newkirk said, six million Jews died in concentration camps, but six billion broiler chickens will die this year in slaughterhouses. Why? So she's drawing a parallel between the death of humans, the slaughter of humans, and the slaughter of chickens. They're both the same. See, that's going too far, don't you think? That's crazy. That's just absolutely nuts. So then, two unbiblical responses to animals. One is animal abuse, and the other is animal worship. Now, let's answer this question that perhaps is on your mind. Will there be animals in heaven? Uh, that's a good question, isn't it? Some say, absolutely. Since animals were part of God's original creation plan, it's likely they'll be part of his eternal plan. Maybe. I don't know. There certainly do appear to be animals in what we call the earthly reign of Christ, otherwise known as the millennial reign of Christ. Have you heard of this? Millennial for 1,000 years. For instance, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. So we know for sure in the millennial reign of Christ, there will be animals, and some say by extension, therefore, uh, they probably will be in eternity as well. As much as I want to say, without any equivocation, this is true, I don't think we can make the Bible say more than it does. I think we don't know. That's all. Now, that distresses me a little bit, to tell you the truth, because I, real, I would like to have a final answer to this question. I mean, how could it be heaven without animals? 
Isn't that a narrow point of view? But sometimes I wonder about it. And then I read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not even entered the heart or the mind of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And now I can rest. I don't have a final answer to this question. Are there animals in heaven? But it becomes subsumed under this declarative statement. Stuart, you let your imagination run wild about the glories and blissfulness of heaven. And even that will fall short of the reality. Stuart and anyone who qualifies for eternal life, there will be pleasures and satisfaction and fulfillment to the extent you'll be fine. All of your emotional needs will be met. Not only will every tear be dried personally by the Lord, according to Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, not only will there be the absence of mourning or crying or pain, even the reality of death which haunts us here, not only that, but there will be such fullness of blessing, such blissful satisfaction of anything we can imagine, uh, that text actually says, you cannot imagine how marvelous, how overwhelmingly marvelous it will be. And so I'm fine now. I don't have an answer to the specific question, but I have an answer to the general reality. Don't worry about it. You won't miss a thing. You will lack for nothing in heaven. Which leads me to this. Isn't the very question, will my pet be in heaven? Isn't that an irrelevant question if you're not going to be there? But that's the point. You can be, I don't know about your pet, but you can be absolutely certain and sure of your place in heaven. Why? Because God made it very, very possible. So here's what happened. The first of us, Adam and Eve, sinned. Even under the most marvelous experience and atmosphere, they were not impoverished, nothing like that. They had everything. Even under the best of experience, the the, the uh, stuff of which they were made was manifested. They sinned against God. They tried to deal with it. Isn't just, this just like people? They tried to deal with it their way. You know what they did? They tried to hide from God. Let's just act as if he's not a reality. Uh, then they, you know, they engaged in blaming one another and all kinds of blame shifting. We do that. Then they did something quite interesting. I call it the first religion. They, they tried to cover up for their nakedness, their vulnerability before God by fashioning for themselves a covering. It was called an apron of leaves. Leaves. That's the first religion. Religion is man's attempt to cover up for one's sin uh, in the, uh, through, through human effort. But God intervened and said, none of those things are going to do. How are you going to hide amongst the trees I made? And this lame thing of blaming one another is just not going to cut it. And that foolish effort to cover up your nakedness in some good work, some, some tailoring exploit, some, some apron of leaves, that's not going to work. So you know what a gracious God does? You can read all about it uh, on your own. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. He took the life of an innocent animal, shed its blood, and clothed Adam and Eve with the skins 
of animals. So I just found out, though God created them, spoke them into existence, thinks it's good to have animals, provides for animals and values animals and all the rest, he doesn't value animals nearly as much as he values us. Animals, God says, are willing, I'm willing to sacrifice them for you. So he offered to us a marvelous hint in foreshadowing about what the Lord Jesus Christ would one day do. Back in the New Testament, John chapter 1, verse 29, it's a day in Jerusalem, and a fellow named Yochanan, John the Apostle, is walking around. He had followers. And he says, hey, 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 listen up. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. He says, listen, listen. And then he points to someone. He says, behold, look what he said, the Lamb of God. Who, who was he pointing to? The Lord Jesus. Behold, he called him the Lamb of God. What do you mean, Lamb of God? John said, he takes away the sin of the world. God started it out in Genesis 3 and said, to provide atonement for your soul, life is required. For you to live, to escape the penalty of sin, which leads to death, life must be offered. He gave us a foreshadowing of it in Genesis 3. And then throughout the Old Testament, God regulated and ordained a whole system of sacrifices whereby innocent animals were offered in sacrifice uh, so as to provide for the remission, the atonement, the covering, the forgiveness of sin. All this is a foreshadowing of the ultimate. I love this terminology, Lamb of God. Everyone in the day would understand a lamb is not an aggressive, dangerous vicious animal. A lamb is about as innocent as you could be. A lamb doesn't want to harm anybody. A lamb is, this was Jesus, free from any impure motives, from sin, from corruption, from any hostility towards the human race. In fact, he became one of us. He was lamb-like, so precious, just as God said, as a foreshadowing of the Son. I'm willing to offer the blood of innocent animals for you, that's nothing. It pales in comparison to what I'm really willing to offer to you. My only, I can't replace him. Begotten, he's from me. He shares my essential nature. Son. Folks, whatever else may be true of animals and all the rest, you and I are worth much, much more. I know this by the price the creator was willing to pay to redeem us. That's how you can tell your worth in his eyes. What is he willing to pay to buy you from darkness and from sin and all the rest? How about the life of the Lamb of God, Jesus himself? Look, we've talked about animals. I hope it's been interesting and all the rest. But it's not the big deal. The big deal is do you have the certainty that should you die tonight, <laughs> you'll be in the loving arms of the risen. He was crucified, but he's the risen and ascended Lamb of God. Do you have the assurance you'll be in his presence with him forevermore, worshiping, serving, loving, and being loved on? Uh, the Lord Jesus paid that price to redeem you. It's not about religion, is it? It's not about religion. No, no, no. This isn't, about, this isn't about you becoming a better person, making an apron of leaves. This is about you saying, oh, God, as you did with Adam and Eve, <clears throat> clothe them with the skins of an animal requiring the death 
of the animal. So too, you're willing to cover up the nakedness of my own sin by having sent your only begotten son, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. There's no good reason for you to leave here without saying, O Lamb of God, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sin. There's plenty of it. Cleanse me. Make me to be just like you. Grant me the assurance of a place in eternity with you. Cast all my sins behind your back. Make me to be like a son or a daughter instead of an adversary. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Be my savior. I will be your devoted follower. Listen, if that's the desire of your heart, and, and if it is, I'll tell you, it, it's God stirring you up. You know what I mean? It's God stirring you up. And if you sense that, then we invite you before we leave tonight to go right there in the back room. It's called the Connection Center. You can enter into partnership with a very caring man or woman. They're waiting for you. And they'll help you to understand. We call it the Connection Center. How do you connect with this Lamb of God? How do I make an irreversible connection with him? They'll help you to do that. They'll pray with you. They'll explain to you the most important thing. Uh, it occurred to me the other day, if anyone ever asked me, Stuart, what's the greatest thing that ever happened to you? I would say to you, it's when I, uh, it's when I realized <laughs> that I could receive the forgiveness of God by accepting the crucified, sacrificed Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please don't leave here without making that decision. In fact, Lord Jesus, we'd like to beseech you about that. Uh, in power only you have, would you impress yourself upon the hearts and minds of those here who, for whatever reason, still live apart from you? It's not really life, is it, Lord? And it certainly doesn't lead to eternal life. Oh, God, this miracle of salvation, I pray it would happen even tonight for those who have yet had the greatest thing happen to them, and that is receiving the forgiveness of God by accepting the finished work of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.